بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم والحمد لله رب العالمين وسبحان الله العلي العظيم وأشهد أن لا إله إلا الله وأن محمد رسول الله اللهم صلي وسلم وبارك على الحبيب المصطفى وعلى آله وأصحابه ومن اتبعه بإحسان إلى يوم الدين سبحان الله Praise be to God the Lord of the heavens and the earth and all that was and will be the sustainer, the immutable. And we thank God for the blessing of God's mercy, companionship, and love. Those those who have not learned to love God and to love the Prophet Muhammad do not know what love is. It's intoxications, it's beauty, it's mercy and it's passion. Inshallah, today we will have a different khutbah from the ones that I have tended to give in the past. In one of my khutbahs in the past, I've spoken about the net and the quickly evolving social realities that we must contend with in the age of information and in the age of the net. The reality that confronts us is that the age of information comes at a time in the progress and development of history, a time where Muslims are one of their weakest points in history. Of course, this situation didn't start a decade or two ago, it started centuries after the end of the Muslim caliphate, the end of the united Muslim state, like the United States of America, the united Muslim state. After the end of that period, or the crumbling of that Muslim state, colonialism played an enormous role in the new, in setting a new reality for Muslims. 
reality that they have not yet acclimated to or adapted to in a variety of ways. But even the post-colonial period has confronted Muslims with challenges that are more stark and more difficult and more subtle than even the colonial period. In all cases, information is power. And power negotiates information. Information is not just simply an objective reality that is presented. Information is just not simply data that you either take or leave. Information is intimately tied and connected with power. It has been in history, it is right now, and it will be forever. And so it is not surprising that the impact of the flow of information disempowers the disempowered, disempowers the disempowered, and augments the power of the already powerful. In a past khutbah, I focused especially on the Islamophobia industry and the way that it uses the information age to its advantage. And I've suggested that the network, the realm of social media, is like the marketplace that has many possible pitfalls and sources of fitna. And I even recommend it to people that they um, do not engage Islamophobic sites and steer away from them One of the main issues is that Islamophobia is intimately connected to the colonial project that has been ongoing for hundreds of years. Islamophobia is not some objective um, uh, happenstance. Islamophobia is rooted in a racist, colonial enterprise that has been developing and adapting itself for centuries. There was a considerable response to this khutbah, and I've heard from a lot, especially of young Muslims who have written to me, with a lot of questions, queries, suggestions, comments, um, so on and so forth. Let me first start out by emphasizing 
what I meant and what I mean now when I say that Islamophobic sites present information that the average Muslim is not equipped to respond to or to even deal with, that unless you are very anchored in your tradition, unless you are well-educated, and unfortunately, Muslims today, especially Muslims in the West, do not have the institutional infrastructure that allows for the solid education for the average Muslim. So Muslims fall easy prey to the type of allegation and slanderous, slanderous information, and also I'll add racist, and also I will add colonial uh, information that Islamophobic sites perpetuate. So take for example, In one of these sites, I found an evangelical talking about Islam and saying the following. The Prophet told Muslims in a hadith, according to this evangelical, to take the Qur'an from four people. The evangelical Islamophobe goes on to say, however, all four died before the Qur'an was collected. He names the four and he tells his audience the Prophet said, take the Qur'an from these four individuals, but all four died before the Qur'an was collected. Isn't this a problem with your Islam? Well, it would be a problem. It would be a problem except for the fact that two of these people not only did not die before the Qur'an was collected, Abdullah ibn Mas'ud was in Harith but died well before the, uh, the Caliphate of Osman even lived through the Caliphate of Osman, so lived through the collection of the Quran, and were in fact both part of the committee that collected the Quran after the death of the Prophet. Now, you wouldn't know this, and it would take an average Muslim a considerable amount of research to know that this evangelical fellow is simply lying. But not just lying about who lived and died. The hadith that he is referring to didn't say take the Quran from these four people. It simply said take your Islam, meaning that those people are very good people and they are an ethical example. I was surprised to find young Muslims 
saying, oh my God, he, how can we, this, oh, this has given me a crisis in my face when, when they heard what this guy said. Take another example. Another one of these evangelical Islamophobic sites said, when the Prophet in the Isra and Mi'raj rises to the heavens, he asks the angel Gabriel, Gabriel, whether he can talk to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And Gabriel tells him, Allah is busy. What is Allah busy with? Allah is praying. And Allah is saying, so the Prophet asked Gabriel, Allah prays, God prays, and Gabriel tells him, yes, he prays. What does he say when he prays, Gabriel? Gabriel responds, he says, Allah says, subuhun subuh quddusun quddus. According to this evangelical in that site, this hadith is in Tirmidhi and it's sahih. The minute I heard the hadith, I know this hadith very well. And it, no scholar has said that this is an authentic hadith. In fact, all scholars said that it, it is a fabricated hadith. Allah doesn't pray. Allah doesn't say subuhun subuh, quddusun quddus. The entire story is among what we call the Ezraite traditions. There is a tradition very similar to that in the Talmud. Very similar to that in the Talmud. But it was fabricated and Islamized by a liar in Islamic tradition. I underscore, I underscore to all these young Muslims that have written me, unless you are anchored in Islam and the Islamic tradition, Islamophobic, whether of the evangelical breed or the Israeli right-wing breed, fabricate and lie. And they rely on your ignorance of your tradition to cast doubt. If you morally and ethically and spiritually are not firmly constructed within, it is a much safer route not to engage. In other words, not to expose yourself to this material. Because you are a human being. And because institutions of Muslim learning in our day and age are so weak that they're unable to respond to even the most simple things. So for instance, they will talk to you about the marriages of the Prophet but they will not talk to you about the marriages of the prophets of the Bible. According to the Bible, 
the Prophet Sulaiman Solomon married a thousand wives and concubines. David had a hundred. And that's only to name two. They never mention any of that. But they focus on the areas of your vulnerability. Now, during the course of responding to these messages or at least reading them and thinking about them, because I don't, and I, my apologies to all those who write, I often don't respond, but I read and, and consider what you've said. It reminded me of reading some of the evangelical literature over the years, I, from as far back as 1985 till just six months ago was the last evangelical piece of literature that I read. What strikes me about the evangelical breed of Islamophobia in particular, and we, Islamophobia are schools of thought, and we can talk about the various different types of Islamophobia and their different projects and what they do. Inshallah, maybe in other khutbahs and so on. But evangelical Islamophobia around the world, according to its own literature, says, don't start out preaching to Muslims by talking to them about your Christian faith. According to their literature, Muslims are incapable of understanding the Trinity because the Holy Ghost is not within. And so don't try to explain to them their faith as a starting point because it's a non-starter. Start out by casting doubt, by putting doubt in their hearts about their own religion. And here are sample questions about how you go, how you go about doing this. Questions that we can all predict appear to simply be asking, to be seeking the truth. Ask them about the following, and once you see that doubt has built within them, that there are enough questions about the Quran, about the Prophet, about the companions, about the first civil war, etc., etc., about Shia and Sunnah. Once they are thoroughly confused and lost, at that point, start introducing them to the good news of the love of Jesus Christ and the sacrifices of Jesus Christ. I said information is power, and power weaves and we and and negotiates and constructs information. This same methodology 
is as old as colonialism in Islamic world. You can read texts from as far back as the 1800s that says the same exact thing. When you converse with Muslims, ask them questions about the caliphate, about the Ottomans, about, the, of course, this is back in the 1800s and early 1900s. Ask them questions about whether the Ottomans really represent them, about whether they ever had justice through Islam. Ask them questions about Oriental despotism, about the oppression of women. Don't talk to them about Christianity till you are sure that they are full of anxiety about their own tradition and religion. But I want to do something different today. I want to do what the powerless must do with the powerful. The powerless remain powerless. And this is a lesson Muslims have not learned. The powerless remain powerless unless they, they learn to return the gaze. Return the gaze. You have questions? I'm not going to put my myself in a defensive position because I can play the same game. And I have plenty of questions about where you come from. Often the best defense of offense is offense, offense. So we are going to engage, inshallah, today in some Bible study. You, I've never done this in the past, and I normally don't like to talk about a religion other, in, other than Islam. But quite frankly, I am fed up. I am thoroughly fed up. And I want to give an illustration of what education can do and what an educated Muslim can do if they are proud of who they are, confident, solid, and is able to return the gaze. Let's take a step back. What evangelical Islamophobes don't tell you about, I'm not even going to get into the, 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 how the Bible was written and what, what, how the Bible was constructed and all these historical issues. I'm not going to get into them. It will take too long. Jesus, may Allah bless him, We know that Jesus, spoke in northern 
old Galilean dialect of Aramaic. Not just Aramaic, there's several different dialects of Aramaic. Language is epistemology. Language is meaning. So for instance, in English we use the word love. Love could mean a lot of different things could mean brotherly love, could mean spousal love, could mean sexual love, could mean the love of the neighbor, could mean merciful, compassionate love. In Aramaic, there are several words for love. Among them, the word shav, similar to the Hebrew ahov, and also, actually, ahov in, in some Aramaic dialects was also used. But there is also the word racham that was used in Aramaic. Raham is merciful, compassionate love, very much like the Arabic word Rahma. While Shav was more romantic type of love. Ra'a was more brotherly type of love. This is an Aramaic. Now remember, Jesus speaks a certain dialect of Aramaic. The Bible, there's a big scholarly debate whether the Bible was written at all in Aramaic, but even if we accept the stories that say that the Bible was written in Aramaic or some parts of the Gospels are written in Aramaic, the only copy that might have existed according to historical reports of the Bible in Aramaic disappeared in 300 AD, around the time of Constantine and the Nicaea Council, when the concept of Trinity was settled on. From Aramaic, from Aramaic, the Bible was scripted in Greek, Hebrew, from that to Latin, from Latin to several versions of English, as well as the other languages, but the part that we care about. Now, in Greek, there are agape for love, there's philio for love, and there's eros for love. Philio is like brotherly love, eros is like sexual love, agape is more romantic love. Even with a concept as simple and as core as love, are we talking about Rahma? Rahma? Mercy? Are we talking about Av or Shav? Are we talking about the Greek Agapi? Are we talking about the Greek Filio? Are we talking about the Greek Eros? Translation makes a huge difference. Imagine if I want to quote Shakespeare to you in Arabic. And I tell you, Shakespeare said, if you know Shakespeare well, no quote in Arabic 
will be Shakespeare. You'll say Shakespeare didn't say. You have the meaning, but you don't have the precise words. So the Bible that we read in English, and we say Jesus said, love this and love that. Did he use the word similar to the Arabic meaning of wadud? A love that is from the temporal to the divine? Or did he use something akin to what we mean by the word love in English? But beyond that, even if we take the Bible as it exists in English, the Bible is a very complex text. It's an accumulation of historical texts. A little bit of research would quickly tell you that every single gospel, whether in the Old Testament or New Testament, we have scholarly debates about the real author of each gospel. Who wrote it? Even when it says that this was a letter from Paul, you will find numerous scholars saying, well, Paul didn't really write it, or maybe Paul did write it, or a student of Paul, or a group of writers later on tried to recapture what Paul said. Leave alone Jesus, Jesus' self. So let's take something as simple as the divinity of Jesus. Nowhere in the Bible does it explicitly say that Jesus was divine. And I'm going to give you examples. In fact, there are many parts of the Bible that say the exact opposite. And we'll see examples. The Bible is a complex text. If you read it because you want to find in it a particular thing, you will find it. In other words, it is because of its historicity, you can easily project onto it what is within you. According to the Bible, Jesus is the bread of life, the light of the world, the gate of, of the, for the sheep, the good shepherd, the resurrection and life, and I'm skipping the citations for now, the way, the truth, and the life, in John, the true grapevine, all of these Christian theologians through the ages cited as evidence of the divinity of Jesus. None of them explicitly say that Jesus was divine. In fact, go with me on this journey. This is one of the standard but good translations of the Bible, the New Oxford Bible. I like it better than many of the other Americanized translations because it's closer to the Latin. Although if you read Latin, 
you will immediately notice the huge difference between the text in Latin, leave alone Greek, or as I said, Hebrew, or leave alone Aramaic, and the text in English. But the Oxford Bible, at least, has notes that tells you some of the disagreements that scholars had about the way you translate this or that verse. Okay. So, take the following examples. Luke chapter 3, starting at verse 21. Now, when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens was opened, and the Holy Spirit descended upon him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from the heaven, said, You are my son, the beloved, the beloved, with you I am well pleased. The descending of the dove is often in Christian theologian, in theologian, theology is a big deal. It goes on. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness, where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing at all during these days, and when they were over, he was famished. The devil said to him, if you are the son of God, command the stone to become a loaf of bread. Jesus answered him, it is written, one does not live by bread alone. Then the devil led him up and showed him an instant, in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And the devil said to him, To you I will give their glory and all, their, and all this authority, for it has been given over to me, and I give it to anyone I please. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. Jesus then answered him, It is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve only him. This is Luke. The devil besieges Jesus, offers him the heavens, offers him the world, and Jesus' response is, worship the only God. In the same part of Luke, Jesus answered him, it is said, do not put the Lord your God to the test which Christian theologians write massive commentaries on. A complex text. Worship, if Jesus is God, why does the devil have the power to offer him the world? And if Jesus is divine, why does Jesus says, is it said that worship only God? Going on. John chapter 5, 43. Jesus says, 
How can you believe when you accept glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the one who alone is God? Jesus says, according to John, one who alone is God. Going on, still with John. Jesus answered them, this is not my work. This is the work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent. So they said to him, what sign are you going to give us then so that we may know, so that we may see it and believe you? In other words, believe that you were sent by God. Jesus goes on, For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. This is indeed the will of my Father, that all who see the Son and believe in him may have eternal life. Who sent me? The will of who sent me? Going on. Jesus talks about being instructed by God. Not equal to God, not with God, not a partner of God, but being instructed by God. When you lifted up the Son of Man, then you will realize that I am He, and that I do nothing on my own. This is Jesus speaking. That I do nothing on my own, but I speak these things as the Father instructed me. This is John chapter 8, 26. I do nothing on my own, but I speak these things as the Father instructed me. And the one who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do what is pleasing to him. Jesus goes on in the same part. But now you are trying to kill me, a man, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did because they were accusing him of not following, of trying to imitate Abraham. And Jesus is saying, well, this is not what Abraham did. I have a communion with God, but God is the one who set me as the Father and the real one and only God. If God were your Father and you loved me, for I came from God and now I am here, I did not come on my own, but he sent me. Again, John chapter 8. We'll go on. Same in John chapter 13. For I have spoken, for I have not spoken on my own, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment about what to say and what to speak. And I know that his commandment is eternal life. What I speak, therefore I speak just as the Father has told me. In Islam, we have a word for that, and that word is prophet, as I hope we'll have time to show, because in the Bible, 
Jesus is recognized as a prophet. After Jesus, this is still John chapter 17 now. After Jesus has spoken these words, he looked up to heaven and said, Father, the, the hour has come. Glorify your son so that the son may glorify you, etc. So on. And this is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God. So that may you know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth by finishing the work that you give me to do, that you gave me to do. So now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had in your presence before the world existed. Exactly like the supplications I utter to God as my Lord and my Father and my Savior and my love. I, Khaled Abu Fadl, existed within God before the world existed. Eternal and one. But I know who I am. I'm a human being who, I, who submits to God. Doesn't accept the claim of being a partner, divine. This is John chapter 20. Jesus said to her, do not hold on to me. This is after his resurrection. Do not hold on to me because I have not yet ascended. Sorry, this is before the resurrection. Do not hold on to me because I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Jesus is speaking and says, I am ascending to my God and your God. Not only that, but in fact, listen to this long segment from Cornelius, first Cornelius, Paul's at supposedly the letter that Paul wrote to James. Paul is reporting on Jesus Christ. Be imitators for me as I am of Christ. This is Paul speaking. I commend you because you remember me in everything. Sorry, I got the wrong. Yeah. Okay. This is still Cornelius, but. Um, chapter 15. Then comes the end when he hands over the kingdom to God, the Father, after he has destroyed every ruler and every authority and power. Then it goes on. When all things are subjected to him, God, then the Son himself will also be subjected to the one who put all things in subjection under him so that God may be all in all. Jesus according to Cornelius, in, in the hereafter, will be subjected to God. Timothy, chapter 2. This is now Jesus speaking. For there is one God, 
There is also one mediator between God and humankind, Jesus Christ Jesus himself, human, who gave himself a ransom for all. The theme of there is one God and that Jesus will be subjected or is a subject that answers to that one God who sent him is prevalent throughout the Bible. And I chose just some quotes. Some quotes. But it's not just that. We are told in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 8, that Jesus at one point was lower than angels. It's very similar to in Islam, human beings are lower than angels. So here it goes. Now in subjecting all things to them, God left nothing outside their control. As it is, we do not yet see everything in subjection to them, but we do see Jesus, who for a little while, and in Latin it doesn't read as little while, and in Hebrew it doesn't read as little while, it says, it reads a while. Who for a little while was made lower than the angels, now crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that they, by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. A God who at one point was lower than angels. Listen to Acts chapter 3. Moses said, this is not part of the Old Testament, this is the New Testament. Moses said, Lord, your God will raise up for you from your own people a prophet like me. Moses is saying, God will raise a prophet like me. You must listen to whatever he tells you, and it will be that everyone who does not listen to that prophet will be utterly rooted out of the people and all the prophets, as may have spoken from Samuel and those after, the, after him also predicted these days. One of the, my, most, my, my favorite parts of the Bible as a Muslim, because it reminds me of what Abraham did, what Moses did, and what Muhammad did, is Jesus praying. Now listen to the theme of Jesus praying. What to our evangelical friends is a God. This is in Matthew chapter 13. Immediately, he, Jesus, made the disciples get into the boat and go on ahead to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. And after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up the mountain by himself to pray. One of the biggest issues in Christian theology 
a God praying to a God, God praying to himself, going up the mountain just like Muhammad to pray. And it's not just in Matthew, but, and I, again, selected just a few parts, the parts that I just could remember off the top of my head. Jesus went with them to a place called Jisamen, and, and he said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. It goes on. And going a little farther, he threw himself on the ground. Now the Latin says, and the Hebrew, he threw his face on the ground and prayed, saying, my father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me, yet not what I want, but what you want. But yet not what I want, but you, Father, want. You, God, want. My Father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. So leaving them again, leaving the disciples, Jesus, so leaving them again, he went away and prayed for the third time, saying the same words. In Matthew, Jesus falls on his face to pray. Does fall on your face to pray remind you of anything? Sujut. Now, Consider Luke, chapter, chapter 6, verse 12. Now during those days he went out to the mountain to pray, and he spent the night in prayer to God. Jesus spent the night in prayer to God. I'm not like the Islamophobes to tell you Christians are liars. We don't do that. We respect and honor Christians. But I am here to tell you, return the gaze. Evangelicals come to you and give you a picture that, that depends on your ignorance. Because the Bible is a complex text. It needs years of study. And again, I've only picked portions. Jesus is a prophet. Jesus has been sent. Jesus prays to God. Jesus executes the will of God, the one and only. But at the same time, Christian theologians from the Council of Nicaea till today have insisted, if Jesus is the Lamb, Jesus is the Light, then Jesus is divine. Muslims, return the gaze. Yes, it takes years of study, but that's exactly why we should support our educated, so that they can return the gaze. بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله رب العالمين والصلاه والسلام على محمد وعلى اله واصحابه وتبعوا باحسان الى يوم الدين
One of the things that irritates me to no end is when Islamophobes take a historical text and go to a laity, not a scholar, and try to take the entire Islamic tradition just by reference to these historically embedded texts. Let me give you an example, not from Islam, but again, from Christianity. Luke, chapter 14, verse 26. This is now supposedly Jesus' talking. Now the large crowds were traveling with him, Jesus, and he turned and said to them, whoever comes to me and does not hate, does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, and even life itself cannot be my disciple. Now imagine if we Muslims did what the Islamophobes do, and take a quote like this from Luke and say Christianity teaches that you must hate your father and mother and wife. Whoever comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife, children, brother, sister, yes, and even life itself cannot be my disciple. Mudslinging is easy, people. And Muslims grow up, have the humility of saying, I don't even know enough to doubt because I'm not educated. Take another example. A lot of the questions I get have to do with women. Okay? Let's go again. I will not respond by defending because I don't defend. I teach scholarship. But listen to the Bible if we do by the same yardstick. Timothy. Timothy chapter 2 verse 2 or verse 5, sorry. For there is one God. There is one God. And there is also one mediator between God and humankind, Jesus Christ himself, human, who gave himself a ransom for all. Then it goes on. Let a woman learn in silence with full submission. I permit no woman to teach or to have authority over a man. She is to keep silent. For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing, provided they continue in faith and love and holiness and modesty. Before you ask questions about texts that require years of study, read your own Bible. Here's another part. 
This is in Corinthians. One, Corinthians 1, chapter 10, verse 11. Be imitators for me of me, as I am of Christ. This is Paul speaking, of course. I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions just, just as I handed them on to you. But I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man and that the husband is the head of his wife and God is the head of Christ. Any man who prays or prophesies with something on his head disgraces his head. Man should not cover his head. But any woman who prays or prophesies with her head unveiled disgraces her head. According to Corinthians, women must veil their heads when they pray or prophesize. It is one and the same thing as having her head shaved. And that's, anyway, I don't want to get into all types. For if a woman will not veil herself, then she should cut off her hair. But if it is disgraceful for a woman to have her hair cut off or to be shaved, she should wear a veil. For a man ought not to have his head veiled, since he is the image and reflection of God. But women is the reflection of man. But woman is the reflection of man. Indeed, man was not made from woman, but women were made from man. Neither was man created for the sake of woman, but woman was created for the sake of man. For this reason, a woman ought to not have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. Goes on a bit. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head unveiled? Does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it is degrading to him. But if a woman has long hair, it is her glory. For her hair is given to her for a covering. But if anyone is disposed to be contentious, we have no custom, nor do the churches of God. That takes us a little bit. Into I'm, not saying, I'm not saying this to support the veil. I'm returning the gaze. One final example. And again, out of so many. Now, Jesus, salam, Isa, salam, he blessed. In Mark, tells us that he, as a messenger, doesn't know when the final day is. Mark chapter 14, verse 32. Heavens and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But about the day or hour, no one knows. The, about the day or hour, the final day, no one knows. Neither the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. But only the Father. 
This is precisely why it took Constantine an, an enormous amount of persecution to establish the doctrine of Trinity in the Council of Nicaea. Because many readers of the Bible in Hebrew and even in Latin and Greek knew that the Bible was a complex text. A text like a lot of medieval texts used allegories and used what we would call in our modern age exaggerations to praise the holiness and sanctity of Jesus as a messenger of God, as the bearer of truth. But the idea of divinity, the idea of Jesus as a part of the Godhead, whether the Trinity or the duality, because there are Christians who believe that it's only Father and Jesus Christ and the Holy Ghost is not divine. But the Holy Ghost is a part of all of us. It flows in all, meaning it flows in all those who accept Jesus Christ, not all of us, but only those who accept Jesus Christ. And I haven't even started talking about the idea of Jesus dying for our sins. That would take us hours. It saddens me. It saddens me because it takes scholars that have studied the Bible their entire life and the debates continue. But yet you find evangelical Islamophobes put Muslims on the defense and Muslims go, oh, my face is weakened. I don't know what to do. My face is weakened. Well, either don't engage or educate yourself because before you destroy your hereafter. Because the consequences of your ignorance is that you are going to destroy your hereafter. If you actually knew the Bible, you would know that the Bible confirms the one and only God, the Father, who have sent the Son of Man, as Jesus calls himself, as we are all sons and daughters of hum humanity, as we are all sons and daughters of God, as we are all bonded to God with love and passion. The difference is in Islam, we don't need someone to die for our sins. We don't need to see someone suffer for us to feel God's love. We feel God's love without God's suffering. Muslims, I appreciate your writings. I appreciate everyone who extends, who reaches out to me. But the age of social media 
have turned the entire world into a place of enormous chatter and noise. Learn to purify your ears so that you listen only to what is worth listening. Allahumma afa'anna wa lana wa rahamna ya rabbal alameen wa forgive us help guide us to the light inhabit us with your light and your love and your guidance and your compassion and your mercy ya Allah wa salli wa sallim wa barik ala muhammad wa alihi wa sahbihi wa aqim as-salam ya rabbal alameen